Richard Powers, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. You are the author of now 13 novels. Most readers do know you from The Overstory, which won the 2019 Pulitzer for fiction. You also have a National Book Award. You have uh, a MacArthur Genius Grant, as we like to call them, and a Lannan Literary Foundation Award as well. Your new novel, Bewilderment, is a slightly different take on some familiar themes. We see man versus nature again. We see love. We see grief. But it's a first-person narrator. Yeah, which I haven't done for many years. I was I was trying to do the math on that. It has to be more than a decade. And I've done it very rarely mm-hmm. and never as purely and in so focused a way. I mean, I've had first-person narrators intercut with third person and so forth, but this is a real chamber piece and it's different. It really uh, jumps my trajectory in a lot of ways. I can't tell you how different it was to write from the previous book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a third of the length of the previous book. It has only two characters where the previous one had in excess of nine it unfolds over the course of one year rather than mm-hmm. centuries, as some of my other books have. And it, as you point out, it's entirely dominated by one person's voice, one narrative style, one narrative frame. And it was scary to hone down the tool chest and to, to pare it down and to, to be so exposed with such a, such a minimal amount of material. That, it's unusual for me. But I think the blessing of reaching a a ripe old age and going beyond all expectation with regard to, you know, what might be given to me over the course of career is that you get the chance to take another big chance. You also have a nice line about scientists liking second chances. Mm. And your novels spend a lot of time in the scientific realm. They do. and, And this novel is itself narrated by a scientist, Theo Byrne, in this case, who is an astrobiologist, which interestingly wasn't even a thing when I was Theo Byrne's age. And now it's not only a discipline, but it's a discipline that's growing so quickly that it's creating its own sub-disciplines. And that's the result of this amazing transformation in astronomy over the last few decades, the discovery of exoplanets and the rapid proliferation of data about all these worlds out there that Probably most astronomers always suspected were out there, but many of them may have believed that they would never live to see the day when we would actually detect them or be able to get data from them. And so Theo is continuing in this long powers tradition of uh, folks who are trying to understand what it means to be human by trying to understand what goes way beyond the human. And I especially enjoyed educating myself about this discipline that's now only a couple of decades old and is growing month by month. Would you explain the title for listeners? Sure. So I could tell a little story actually about this word, which is one of my all-time favorite words. And it's been a favorite word of mine since at least the 90s, when I read an essay by Lewis Thomas, talk about people who have worked to unite science and art. Thomas was a, a physician and a research scientist who was also one of the most beautiful lyric essayists uh, of my lifetime. And he wrote a number of books. One of the most famous is called The Lies of a Cell. And he wrote a magnificent essay called On Matters of Doubt. And he was exploring C.P. Snow's two cultures. You know, C.P. Snow had written this this famous essay back in the day uh, where he was talking about how profoundly different the world looks to scientists 
from the, the way the world looks to humanists and artists. And could it be the case that the twain will never meet and will just kind of diverge and become two different kinds of uh, people? And Thomas really didn't like this. He wanted to find something that unified not only the arts and the sciences and the humanities, but all the different kinds of sciences and all the different kinds of art and humanistic pursuits and all the different kinds of cultural formations that you can see on this planet. He ends the essay by saying, I think I found it. I think I found the common denominator between all these different things. The one condition that you can say is absolutely bedrock to all human pursuits. That's bewilderment. <laughs> and I was just so moved by that. At the time, I was thinking, God, someday I want to write a book called Bewilderment <laughs> and you know, explore this idea that it really is a bedrock human condition. And back in 2013, many, many years after, after filing away this word and, and after many essays of my own and, and interviews where I would try to sneak the word in wherever I could, I came across the account of this strange experimental uh, new technique called decoded neurofeedback, which is about a little more than a decade old. And this technique essentially involves recording the brain states in real time of a subject who is learning something or engaged in activity or immersed in something that's eliciting a certain emotional response. And then taking that recording and using it as a template so that another person who's also being scanned in real time by fMRI can try to approximate it in response to visual and verbal cues, almost like a, a game of blind man's bluff where the machine is saying warmer, warmer, cold, oh, wait, wait, no, farther, far, no, you know, turn the other way. And by this process of feedback, of constant course correction, the second person learns how to get into the emotional state that was recorded in the first subject. And when I read about this, it just got this you know, eerie feeling, tingling. Uh, this is ah, this is like a guided telepathy, or it's, it's like an empathy machine. And it's finally going to give us the answer to this old philosophical question of, you know, what, is, what would it feel like to be something other than myself, to be some other person or some other kind of creature? And I started to think about that, and I thought, you know what this is? It's a, it's a guided course in emotional intelligence, or it could become that in, in the future, in some imaginary, scientific, juked-up version of, of decoded neurofeedback. And inevitably, a story started to form in my head. And I thought, wait, this is very familiar. And I thought, this story of increasing emotional intelligence. And I started to think about other kinds of stories that invoke that, and one was the famous story by Daniel Keyes, Flowers for Algernon, in which uh, there, there is a, a, an intellectual, uh, a, a process that gives a, a, a person the ability to suddenly increase his mental capacity. But I wanted to tell a story about somebody who increased, suddenly increases his emotional capacity. Well, I looked at Keyes' story, and in its epigraph, uh, he uses uh, lines from uh, Plato's Republic which is uh, from the, the allegory of the cave. And the line is something like, the eye knows two forms of bewilderment, going into the light and coming back out of it. 
and of course, he's referring to the, the allegory of the cave where we're all kind of shackled in the darkness and mistaking illusion for reality. And some person becomes free and steps out and walks out and discovers, oh my God, you know, we're looking at little shadows from torches. There's a sun out here. And goes back into the cave and tries to communicate that to his fellow prisoners. And of course, that doesn't go over very well. But uh, uh, the idea being, as, as Plato says, that we get bewildered when the truth dawns on us and we get bewildered when we lose a glimpse of that truth. And to me, that's so much a part of the vicissitudes of, of, of living and, and growing and certainly the trials and tribulations of, of, of being a child and the confusions of being a parent. For me, the word is brilliant because it has negative connotations of confusion, disorientation, and loss. But etymologically, it also comes from this idea of going back into the wild, which is not a bad thing. And this recovery of the state of wildness and of interbeing is also at the heart of this story. Yes, there is confusion. Yes, there is despair. But there is also the hope of reconnection that's held out by all the great religions of the world, saying that there is meaning and life and beauty out beyond us, and it's reciprocal, and it's interdependent, and we can be a part of it. We need to be a part of it. As Thoreau says, in wildness, in bewilderment, lies the salvation of the world. And Theo is a really excellent audience stand-in. He really, he means well. He means well. He loves his son. He's grieving his wife. She's died mm-hmm. in a surprise accident. Yeah. He is not fully prepared for life as a single parent. And also his son has challenges. His son is not your average kid. There is no official diagnosis that has been put on Robin, but he's a special kid. And Theo is doing his best, (laughs) but he stumbles over himself. He stumbles over his kid. Really all he wants more than anything is to understand his child. Yeah. When I first got the idea for telling a story about an intense, angry, but also passionate and joy-filled child, a child who you'd have to call neurodivergent, a child who isn't normative. I looked around and I was trying to find other kinds of fiction that ventured into this. And there are very successful examples. I'm you know, thinking of the Mark Haddon book, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is narrated by a neurodivergent young man, a little bit older than my Robin. I think uh, Haddon's narrator is 15 and Robin's nine. And I thought for a while that I would try to tell the story through Robin's point of view. And I thought, no, that's that's not right. You know, I went back to to, to those sort of first lessons that we get in, in point of view and in person uh, when we're thinking about writing. And I realized that what makes Robin beautiful and mysterious and powerful and also heartbreaking is the locked room quality of his difference. He himself is so conscious of being outside. He's lost his mother at an early age. He feels only the persecution of his classmates. He doesn't connect actively. He doesn't have friends. And I'm thinking, no, the right way to tell this guy's story is from the outside. And 
to make him a little bit of a locked room mystery and to make the person who loves him most in the world, the man who would do anything to protect him from the world, try to tell this story and not be able to enter into his son's head, but have to be standing outside and saying, look, you know, I don't know, but here's what I was seeing and here's what I was thinking. And then I started to think about how I used to teach first person when I was a professor back in the day. And it, it was always a surprise to my students to realize that what you think first person is doing is almost the opposite of how it actually functions. You know, when you say, let me tell you about my friend, Jay Gatsby, <laughs> you know, you're seeming to point the camera outward, but you're actually pointing it backward. And this is the story about a man who doesn't actually know how neurodivergent he is. And he's trying to tell us about this boy. And he doesn't even know that he's telling us more about himself than he knows. You make a clear connection between astronomy and childhood throughout the book. Mm, yeah. Can we talk yeah. about that for a second? I wish I could put my finger on the line. And astrobiology in particular, do you have that? I do, thought? actually. They share a lot, astronomy and childhood. Both are voyages across huge distances. Both search for facts beyond their grasp. Both theorize wildly and let possibilities multiply without limits. Both are humbled every few weeks. Both operate out of ignorance. Both are mystified by time. Both are forever starting out. Mm. Yeah, what she said. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the ultimate vision of this book, and I think the thing that felt so vulnerable while I was making it, is that these two lost boys are like evolution, are like the life force itself. They're just kind of blundering forward into new experiments and new provisional improvisations. Some of them work, some of them don't work. And that's all we have. Theo finds that he can calm Robin a little bit and he can excite his boy's imagination in a productive way by giving him as almost like bedtime stories, these journeys to other planets. The novel is intercut with these interludes where father and son travel together in their imagination to these other worlds. And each of these worlds is a kind of experiment where life becomes something else because the conditions that life is handed are so radically different. And of course, science fiction has been using this planetary romance form forever. And I consumed volume after volume of them when I was not much older than Robin, when the, when the form was having its heyday in the 60s and in the early 70s. And of course, on reflection, I can see that travel to other planets is also travel to other people. It's just a way of saying, here's a place where the rules are a little different, where the terrain is different, where the experiment has to follow a different path. And this sense of the connectivity, of not being threatened by radically different ways of being, but instead of saying, no, that's me. That's just me in another place. That's just me in another form. To me, that's at the heart of this book. Yes, we have the empathy machine, but it's empathy not based on the grounds of similarity or affinity. It's true empathy, which is, I don't need to make you more like me. I will travel to your planet and see what life looks like from there. And also artificial intelligence plays a role in the empathy machine. Mm -hmm. The AI learns from whatever subject is using it. It also seems like a really sharp metaphor for social media in that it involves an emotional connection with the subject to this technology. 
but the technology does start by being programmed by humans. We lose sight of the fact that all of these technologies start with human beings and then spread out to impact yeah. even more human beings. And here we are in this world where we're incredibly connected. And yet everyone feels pretty lonely <laughs> in this book. Yeah. It's interesting because social media itself gets absorbed into the plot of the story and starts to drive unforeseen consequences. And in fact, Robbie becomes a kind of social media star unwittingly, you know, just by being who he is and the word getting out about what's happening to him. And this has cataclysmic consequences that no one foresees. And it's that way in which communication starts to take on a life of its own. And it raises all kinds of questions about competition versus cooperation, you know, what kinds of intelligence you can have, intuitive versus explicit intelligence, communication which actually depends upon disclosure versus communication that really is founded on a kind of concealment. And I do think that there is this wild acceleration that we've set in motion where all of the things that life has been toying with from the very beginning, these little blind excursions into what works and what doesn't, and you know how to capitalize on or exploit or compete with or cooperate with other forms of life is following this tremendous curve where it takes a billion years to go from a simple cell to a compound cell up to the present, where in 10 years, our sense of what it means to be human and to communicate to other humans and succeed in the social domain is completely stood on its head. But it's happening so quickly that we can't even see the changes that it's making to us and the ways in which it's altering our brain and our our fundamental sense of what a meaningful life looks like and what gratitude and connection and responsibility look like. These are all being transformed so quickly because of the huge leverage that massive forms of communication are allowing us now. And Theo's having a hard time keeping up. He's a very bright guy, but he's having a difficult time keeping up. And he's not entirely clear that he's having a rough go of it. No, he can't see himself the way that we can. And he sees only Robin's struggle. And it's interesting because Theo introduces Robin to the great paradox at the heart of astrobiology, which is the Fermi paradox. If the universe is so old, and if there are so many worlds out there, life has done so much on the planet Earth, in such a short period of relatively short period of time, where is everybody? Why aren't we being swarmed with messages and, and uh, evidence and, and diversity from out there? So far, we've turned our eyes outward for a while now, and our instruments keep getting stronger, and our ingenious experiments keep getting more ingenious. And we're just confronted with what astronomers call the great silence. And Robin gets intrigued by this Fermi paradox. You know, and he really wants to know why we can't hear from these. Are they out there? You know, are we one of a kind or is life everywhere? And if it's everywhere, why can't they talk to us? Why can't we see them? And one of the most chilling possible answers to the Fermi paradox is that consciousness itself is never long lived that once we get this tremendous power to accelerate and compound and leverage our ability to look back and know and to talk and, and accumulate knowledge, it's volatile and it's unstable. And the astrobiologists talk about the great filters 
maybe it's extremely hard for life to emerge at all. Maybe it's extremely hard for the compound cell to emerge. Maybe it's extremely hard for the multicellular animal to emerge. Maybe it's extremely hard and requires very, very special conditions for consciousness to emerge. Or maybe consciousness is emerging all the time and it's extinguishing itself almost overnight. And those are the kinds of excursions that father and son are making together. It is really essential to this boy to know where are we going? What does it mean? Where, where are we coming from? And what prospects do we have? And of course, the more immediate concern for Robin is he's trying to reconnect to his mother who he lost at the age of seven. And he's constantly asking his father to tell old stories about her so that he can remember the woman who he's had so little experience with. But when he discovers through his father's recounting of, of his mother and through watching videos of his mother together with his father and her work in animal rights, when he discovers the reality of this great extinction that human beings have unleashed on the world, he takes it seriously in a way that few adults do. And it's devastating to him to think that this pantheism of his, where every living thing is sacred, is, is diminishing and vanishing. And he's never going to be able to have a firsthand sense of this rich home that he's already lost. And like a lot of kids, Robin notices everything. Yeah. And won't let adults get away with sweeping them under the rug. That was the other thing that was painful but also full of possibility when I was working on the story that recreating my own childhood and my own sense of, hey, the, all this stuff is not adding up. You guys, you guys have to level with me. That's definitely at the heart of this boy. That's something that scientists and novelists share is that constant inquiry. Yeah. How does it work? What happens next? Where do mm -hmm. we go? What are we doing? What came before us? Who came before us? Where are we going? You were a computer programmer. I was. I made a living programming for a long time. And in science and in programming, it's not good enough to want it to work a certain way. <laughs> it has to work, you know. And, and there's an accountability to results that I think underwrite those disciplines in a way that's another link between science and childhood. The child says, it's not good enough to tell me a story that makes me happy. <laughs> I, I want to know what's actually working or not working out there. But yeah, with regard to programming, it's funny. I thought about it again while I was working on Bewilderment. And that's why Theo is also a programmer. He is trying to develop techniques for finding biosignatures on, on all these new exoplanets that are appearing. Now, it's interesting to think that the first exoplanet was discovered about 30 years ago, last night, right? And now there are thousands of them, and it's quite clear that they are more numerous than we can wrap our heads around. But we can't get direct evidence of them. We still have only directly imaged a very small handful of planets. And even our direct imaging is so crude that we would not be able to, to see anything of consequence, certainly not any direct evidence of biological activity. But Theo is working on programs that will analyze the atmospheres of exoplanets and possibly produce the strong likelihood that certain patterns and certain processes of change are the signature of life. As I was creating Theo, I was thinking again about my own life as a programmer and how those processes of creating structure that actually had consequence and made things work and proved or disproved things, how that all resembled the creation of a novel and the use of form in a novel to ratify or subvert 
expectation. The use of a plot to create the thing that a program does when it runs a trial. The novel is a kind of experiment. It's a kind of empathy machine. It's a way of putting a reader into a program, if you will, and allowing the reader, using the feedback of the story, to say, oh, that's what it would feel like to be another person. I was chatting with one of our store managers while I was doing the prep for this interview. And one of the things we were talking about is the fact that you produce these gorgeous novels with big ideas. You're an idea-driven novelist. We're talking about power. We're talking about disillusionment, isolation, and love, and grief, and technology in some cases. And so John, this is John Sullivan in Champaign, Illinois, which you might be familiar with. My old hometown. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. He was wondering how you pull it off, how you write these big ideas without ever losing sight of character. I mean, Theo is a really human, messy guy. Mm-hmm. Mm. He could live down the street from any one of us. So how do you handle that construction where you don't lose sight of the humanity of your characters while you're wrestling with really big ideas? You know, like Lewis Thomas, I've never really believed that big ideas and big experiences are two different things. And that passion and thinking are two different things. They're all in us, <laughs> you know, and they're all running at full tilt all the time. And we play one off the other. The trick is to show that the human brain is this messy, messy parliament of desires, hopes, fears, ideas, and that ideas drive our passions. They create our understanding of who we are and who other people are and what we want from the world and what we're likely to get from it. But to make that work in a novel, you know, it's interesting because a lot of more conventional, realistic novels use this technique of moral distancing. And, you know, you can't identify the authorial position. You know, the, the characters have to feel like completely autonomous of any design or of any thematic interest. And they have to create this sense of the fictional dream that what we're eavesdropping on is every bit as palpable and real as, uh, you know, putting our ear to the wall in the, in the motel and listening to the people in the, in the room next door. And I've gone about things in a different way, maybe in a more old-fashioned way, where there are two processes. There is that top-down sense of this is a novel that wants to explore in an experimental way the various possibilities and affordances of being human in a world where uh, we are speculating blindly about where we are and who we are. But I also try to build it from the bottom up. And so there are these two processes, almost like tunneling through a mountain from both directions at once. And it doesn't always work out on the first draft that the top down and the bottom up align. You know, I often have to go back and do quite a bit of revision in order to make it seem as if this is a a satisfying fractal construction where the concerns at the largest level of theme and structure are also commensurable in contained in the concerns at the lowest level, which is one person in a room with with another person saying something to them and having all of these levels feel as if they're part of of an organic whole. Bewilderment was a little different. There is science in the book, but it's not a book about science in the way that a, a lot of my other novels were. There are grand ideas in the book, but they spin 
completely out of these two lost boys. And to me, it was lovely you know, to have reached the ripe old age of 64 and say, I've become a different kind of writer. You know, it's a long and winding road. And here I am, you know, after 13 books saying, ah, I barely remember that guy of 20 who was creating these hugely complicated and ingenious intellectual forms. There's a continuity. There's a family resemblance for sure. But the experiment, you know, the, the constant breeding has produced a different species at the end of the day, I think. You mentioned in other interviews that writing the overstory really changed you. Do you think bewilderment is a result of that change? Or do you think it's just having been a novelist over mm. 13 books? I mean, you've been doing this for more than a minute, as the kids like to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because as you were saying that, I was suddenly reminded of the great debate in evolution, whether between gradualism and saltationism. Does one thing become another thing only through tiny little imperceptible changes or does life make leaps? And I think both. I mean, I think I have been making tiny little imperceptible changes all the way along the way, but I do think there was a bit of a leap to Overstory, and then another bit of a leap to this one. This book is so different in size and form, as we were talking about earlier from the previous one. And that has a lot to do with just a sense of arrival that I had in coming to the Overstory and a sense of a new way of thinking about what fiction can do in that book. It was a little bit imposed on me through material conditions too. I mean, once, once the pandemic set in and lockdown occurred. There I was, you know, in the Smokies, not able to travel and to go to all these places as I would ordinarily if I was setting a book in many venues, not able to do my book research in the same way that I would usually do, not able to go out and interview people. And so I was really thrown back as so many of us were over the last, you know, year and a half on just what I had stored up in the cupboard. And it's interesting to see the way in which the Smokies dominates bewilderment. The book opens there, it ends there, and it, it's the place that, that Robin comes into his own in. And I can't pretend that circumstance didn't have something to do with making it a very different kind of book, but I am aware of feeling different. I'll answer it a slightly different way too. After Overstory and after moving to the Smokies, when I was a young man, I used to wake up in the morning and say, you're a writer, darn it. You know, you're going to sit here until you get a thousand words and until you're happy with those thousand words. And then you can go and do whatever else you want, you know, for the day. And that's how I disciplined myself. And that's how I wrote as prolifically as I did. I think something happened in Overstory. And once I moved to the Smokies, it was really the first place that I lived where I felt I belonged to the place. And I was taking my energy from the place and I was learning about the neighbors and I was feeling what it was that the land and the seasons and the weather wanted to do and what it was capable of doing and who I was living with when I was there. And instead of having this sense of, oh, you know, I need to produce so much every day, I completely changed my sense of the obligations of the day. And instead it became, what month is it? What's in bloom? What animals are feeding on what? At what elevation? What's the weather like? Where would be the place to go today to really find out what the world is doing? And that came first. And if it was sunny, I'd be in the river. 
and swimming if it was warm enough and looking at the fish. And if it was a little more cold or if, if something was in bloom at the high altitudes, I'd be up on a trail above 6,000 feet. And only afterwards would I then say, well, what you felt and what you saw, how would that go into a story? But interestingly, and I think this is true for a lot of writers, that act of being physically out in the world and moving around, especially walking, you can't stop the ideas once you're doing that. And most of the time, even if I start the day by walking, if I go three or four miles, my head is exploding and I have to kind of run back home and, and the words are there. But as a result of changing the, the relationship between the cart and the horse, I think bewilderment has a very different feel to it. It does. The sense of time is different, not just because it takes place over the year. It's a much more internal book, yeah. I think, and a much more intimate book. I was yeah. surprised by how much time I was spending in Theo's head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just the two of them. Mm. It's a totally dominating story. But uh, of course, with this third party ghost, who's never far from the pages, Alyssa, who dies two years before right. the start of the book. But all we get of her is what these two guys remember with their failing, you know, limited memory. But yeah, this idea that the book unfolds in like a year is different from for me too, you know, that compression of time. And once again, having all the insights and the failures of insights being the product of this one limited, fallible narrator. Can we talk about some of your other influences beyond the Smokies? Because they're clearly, <laughs> they are stamped all over this book and <laughs> yeah. it is gorgeous. But other writers, other books, you've talked about in the past, Pynchon and Gravity's Rainbow was a mm -hmm. book that you returned to again and again. Is that a book you're still looking at? What are you reading? What are you, who are the people that well, you're I'll turning you, to? Yeah, I'll tell you uh, one that does leave its fingerprints on, on bewilderment in an unusual way. I mentioned how Theo entertains Robin with these voyages to other planets. And they function as kind of standalone interludes. Each planet gets a name. We see what happens there, and, and we see father and son voyaging and speculating about the possibilities and the limitations of life in each of these places. Um, and in a way, you know, these they're miniatures. They're, they're a page or a page and a half, and there aren't that many of them. I guess there must be around nine or ten of them in all. But when I was making them, I was realizing that I was returning to an old love of mine, which is this form of the conceptual miniature as pioneered by old timers, you know, way back in the day. I mean, the, the 19th century, you know, had this whole genre of island romances. And every time you set landfall on any new undiscovered place, the, the customs could be entirely different and who knows what the world will bring. But brought up into the planetary romances that we mentioned earlier that I so loved when I was a, a boy and, a, and, and an adolescent. But more recently, the kind of, call it adventuresome fiction of, of someone like uh, Calvino, or Ellen Lightman, Calvino in a book like Invisible Cities, or Ellen Lightman in a book like Einstein's Dreams, where the whole book is nothing but these miniatures. And here's another place, and here's another place, and here's another law of physics, slightly changed, that changes everything. I've always loved that form. The, the possibilities are so powerful. I was always conscious of the 
potential limitations of the form, though, in the sense that there's no dramatic development. And a lot of readers really want that sense of exposition and rising action and climax and denouement, you know, the forward motion of human drama. And in the back of my head, I was always wondering, well, can you have it both ways? Can you have the vignette and the caprice, the intellectual excursion, just the, the, the bagatelle, but also weave it into this developmental form? In Bewilderment, the way that I try to do that is the planets function as standalone chapters, but they also, to the reader who's paying attention to the dramatic story, they also reveal the emotional states of father and son and what father and son are struggling with, their hopes and fears at that moment in the story. Is there anything that you want readers to know specifically about Theo and Robin? We're airing the show on pub dates, so we're not giving away any spoilers. Mm. But what's the thing that you really want readers to know about these two lost boys? That they're, they're improvising and they're experimenting. They're frightened, but they haven't given up hope. There's a line in my novel, Galatea 2.2, we make a vase for the flowers that we're holding. And I think both Theo and Robin are trying to make a vase for the flowers that they're holding. Whether or not they succeed, that the reader is going to have to be the judge of that. And, and whether hope can hold up to the darkness of the world that Robin is discovering, that too is going to be a responsibility for the active and engaged reader to decide. So I have to ask, and you asked this a couple of times in bewilderment, but you never quite answer it. So I'm going to see if I can get an answer out of you. So which is bigger, <laughs> outer space or inner space? Well, I think about this a poem by Emily Dickinson, the brain is wider than the sky. For put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease and you beside. <laughs> I think inner space is bigger. Because without inner space, we wouldn't have outer space. And even mathematically, the amount of ways that neurons can fire inside a human brain is beyond calculating. What's next for you? Oh, the days are getting shorter now and the weather's getting colder and the leaves will soon be turning bizarre colors and falling. So I'm going to try to get in as much swimming as I can while I can. There's always a new story. Miwa. I mean, when I finish a book, I often feel, oh gosh, I've discharged my responsibility to the world and I can just go and play. And that doesn't last for very long. I'm still learning, but I feel best when I have that experiment of a new story and new characters and, and new words to help organize and navigate my days. Thank you, Richard Powers, for joining us on Poured Over. This was wonderful. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks so much. All right. It is time for your TBR Top Off. Hey, everybody. I'm James. And I'm Margie. We're here to add three books to your list after that wonderful interview with Richard Powers. We hope you enjoyed that. So your TBR, your to-be-read pile, uh, we got three new books that we're going to add to that today. We are coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store here in Northville, Michigan, where it is a bit of a cloudy, thunderstormy kind of day. We're starting to get the fall vibes a little bit, hopefully get a little pumpkin spice action. <laughs> uh, 
Very excited <laughs> about that. Some apple orchards, if you're into that sort of thing. We love that here in Michigan. Really yum, yum, yum. gorgeous and fun. So we got three books based on the interview with Richard Powers. And Margie, you got the first one, right? I do. We picked some books today that have a lot to do with the father-son relationship to kind of go along with Richard Powers' interview today. Mm. So my first one is a novel called Homeland Elegies. It is by Ayad Akhtar. The kind of novel can sometimes be referred to as autofiction because it not only includes autobiographical information, it's also set up to resemble a memoir and the narrator shares a name with the author, which is always interesting when that happens. The story focuses on the character of Ayad, born in the U.S., and his father, who immigrated from Pakistan, and the trials and absurdities of being a Muslim American from the chaotic aftermath of 9-11 through the years of increasing xenophobia and prejudice leading up to the election of Donald Trump. One of the biggest sources of friction between father and son is Ayad's father's strong support of Trump. His dad used to be Trump's physician. He keeps art of the deal in his living room, while Ayed is a playwright who struggles to reconcile his Americanness with his otherness. So the difficulties between the two highlight the difficulties of the United States as a whole, including the failure of war policy, the 2008 financial crisis, and the splitting up of communities along ideological lines as you get closer to and through the Trump presidency. It is a lyrical, poignant, and incredibly timely novel. Just beautiful. Okay, and that is Homeland Elegies. Yep, and the author again is Ayad Akhtar. The second one I brought today is called Defending Jacob. It is by William Landay. This is more of a mystery thriller. This is much lighter fare, if you can call it that. So it features a character named Andy Barber, who is a longtime assistant district attorney and his shy, awkward teenage son, Jacob. Andy's quiet suburb is thrown into upheaval and disbelief when a young boy is stabbed to death in a local park and his family's delivered an even greater shock when his son is accused of the crime. Of course, Andy doesn't believe for a moment that Jacob is guilty, but there is some pretty damning evidence against him. And as a murder trial looms, Andy has to deal with his own doubt, uh, a faltering marriage, and the contempt of his neighbors, while also harboring a dark secret. This is a courtroom thriller, but also it's an exploration of how well parents can know their children and how far a parent will go to provide protection. It delivers relentless suspense and moving family drama. And I don't care if you saw the TV show. We all know that the book is always better. <laughs> it's so true. The TV show did have Chris Evans, though. And we do like Chris Evans in America <laughs> One point in its favor. One point in its favor. <laughs> all right. So that was Defending Jacob. And then I have book number three. So mine is probably the most obvious pick of the three, but it's a strong one. It is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. So if you're not familiar with that, it did win the Pulitzer Prize back in 2007, which is about 14 years ago now, if you can believe that. But it is a post-apocalyptic world and a father and son have to make their way through this scary landscape of the United States. So we don't really know the disaster that's happened. And you never actually find out the characters' names. The father is just referred to as the man in the his son is referred to as the boy, but the book is their story of their bonding and through their survival of this landscape and how their relationship can bring the two of them together as they 
try to survive with only a pistol and a little bit of food and whatever they can depend on from the kindness of strangers. The writing is very haunting. It's very poetic. And it's no wonder that it won the Pulitzer Prize and, of course, was a famous pick for Oprah's book club. So that's a great paperback title. If you haven't picked up that or are familiar with it, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, definitely add that one to your list. All right. Thanks, Margie. We had a great, uh, great TBR top off today. Woohoo. That was pretty, pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. All right. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed the poured over podcast with, from Barnes and Noble and the interview today with Richard Powers. I am James and you can follow me at James Reading Books on Instagram. And I'm Margie. You can also follow me at Margie Book Brain. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 